of Acts, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Acts chapter 17. Again, we're dealing with growing in the Christian life. Growing in the Christian life. Acts chapter 17. Now when they had through, uh, passed through Amphipolis wow, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as, the manner, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed, consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks and great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These have turned the world upside down, and are come hither also, whom Jason had received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of the honorable women which were Greeks, and of men not a few. Here in our particular passage, we are once again given some insight to the Apostle Paul's ministry. And we learn something about the Christian life. That we cannot progress very far in this life or be very effective as a Christian in service. We do not make much of the Word of God. The Word of God has been attacked by scholars. It's been refuted by infidels. It's been neglected by even believers. It's unfortunate, however, that many of God's children really don't do anything about it, nor do they really value the Bible as they should. What place does God's Word have in your life tonight? One of the greatest needs probably today is for a re-emphasis upon the nature and the message and even the power of the Word of God. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 12, there are a number of references concerning the Scriptures. A number of those references provoke and even answer some of the questions that we're going to ask tonight. And so we're going to ask three simple questions. We're going to ask the question, what is the Bible? We're going to ask the question, what is the central message of the Bible? And finally, we're going to ask... What are we to do with the Bible? And so tonight, without further ado, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll continue this evening. Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you for this time together. 
Lord, we need you. We love you. We're asking you for your leadership. May your Holy Spirit truly, Father, fill me. I wish not to stand up here alone. Father, certainly we'll waste the time of these listeners, but, Father, I've wasted your time and even mine. God of heaven, stand in my shoes and may I be your mouthpiece tonight. I do not, Father, wish to say or do anything that doesn't bring glory and honor to you. So, Lord, guide my lips and put a watch even before them. Lord, help me now, Father, just to honor you with my being. Lord, may you reveal your word to us. May our hearts burn within us. Lord, may we be ever more convinced that what we hold in our hand is nothing less than literally your word. Father, help us. We desperately need you tonight. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, as we consider and think about growing and learning about God and becoming what God intends us to be, the Word of God becomes so awfully important. I know that as you sit there, you think to yourself, we've heard these things a million times. We certainly don't need to hear them again, but I want you to realize that there are some things that you should never grow weary of. One of them is your salvation. You should never get tired of hearing about how Jesus Christ died on Calvary, was buried, and rose again the third day. Man, I mean, if somebody preached about the resurrection almost every Sunday, you ought to stand and shout every time. When we start talking about the Word of God, I want you to realize that we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about this book that's literally, I mean, settled in heaven. God's perfect, inerrant, holy Word of God. And so as we begin to speak about it, we ought to be excited tonight as we consider some of the aspects of that book. What is the Bible? You say, well, I know what it is. It's God's Word. But what is it? Well, first of all, the Bible consists of the Scriptures. If you would define the word Scripture, you'd find that it's, in its primary sense, it means a writing or anything written. The Bible, as we know it, is broken down into two testaments. I want you to take your Bible, if you would, if you have one tonight, and I want you to look at the beginning. You know where it lists all the books? You know that portion, is, the portion where most of us began years ago, if not still? We're looking for the book the preacher talks about? Trying to find the page that it begins on? Don't tell me you never were there. Everybody was like, man, where's that one at? At some point, now obviously as you grew in your Christian life, as you memorized the books of the Bible, you, you began to get an idea where it's at. And if you, if you ever memorized the books of the Bible even one time, you kind of have a general idea where everything's at. But when you first started, just like myself, I'm sure you looked here. Now, I want you to notice this as we go along, just very quickly. Again, the Bible's broke down into two testaments, it's called. You'll notice in many of those portions there in your Bible, it says the books of the Old Testament, books of the New Testament there. Now, the Old Testament itself is divided into four sections. Four sections. First of all, you have the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. Notice the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is the Pentateuch. Those are the books of Moses. Then you have the historical books. Those are the books that deal with Israel's history. That's Joshua to Esther. As you read through those books, you'll get a good history of God's dealings with Israel. 
Then you have what's called the poetical books. In the poetical books, the, 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 the particular books are listed here. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalm of Solomon. The poetical books. And then finally, you have prophetical books. Of course, those books go from Isaiah to Malachi, to the end of what is often called the Old Testament. So the Old Testament breaks down or divides into four different sections. The Pentateuch, historical books, poetical books, prophetical books. If you would ever attend a Bible college, you would probably take courses called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You may take historical books, and you'll deal with those books dealing with Israel's history, Joshua through Esther. You deal with poetical books. They may say, we got a course on poetical books. Well, there'll be five books that you're supposed to cover in that particular course. And then prophetical, Isaiah to Malachi. Normally, in a Bible college setting, it would be major prophets, minor prophets. Of course, it has nothing to do with who wrote the most. It's just or who, who had the most uh, valuable, I should say, uh, words to say. It's just that the major prophets seem to be a little bit lengthier. Now, Old Testament. Now, let's move to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're going to see it divided into four as well. Notice here, you have historical books first. The historical books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Acts. Historical. They will give you the history of the life of Jesus Christ, His dealings with Israel, and ultimately the transition between God's dealings with Israel, the Jew, and His dealings with the Gentile, the church. And so we see the, the historical uh, books. Then number two, you have the Pauline epistles. Those epistles are Romans to Philemon. Now, some will give credit to Paul for the writing of Hebrews. Whether you give credit to Paul for the writing of Hebrews or not doesn't determine whether or not you spend eternity in heaven or hell. So it's not like it's life or death. It's a matter of opinion. Many believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But then again, there are others that don't. It doesn't really matter in the long run. It's still God's Word. So we see here Romans to Philemon. Now, again, I'm going to include Romans to Philemon as the Pauline epistles. I'm going to look at general epistles as Hebrews to Jude. Hebrews to Jude. And finally, the book of Revelation, of course, Revelation. So we have the New Testament broke down into four divisions or sections. And we have the New Testament broke down into four divisions or sections as well. So that's how the Bible breaks down. That's, the Bible consists of what's called the Scriptures, and they break down the old, the new, four divisions for each. Now, the Bible is, God, is the Word of God. Not only does it consist of the Scriptures, but it is the Word of God. Now, first of all, I want to be clear concerning the origin of the Bible. I want to be very clear. Take your Bible, look over the book of Psalm, chapter 119, verse 89 tonight. Now again, I want you to understand, if, if this seems somewhat basic, it is. The reason I want it to be basic is because it is high time that you explain these things to others. Right. Instead of saying, I want you to read something or go to my pastor and find out. 
It is very imperative and important that you can defend the faith you say you believe. It does no good at all for you to go around talking about a faith that you can't defend. Because if you talk about a faith you can't defend, then what you are saying is that I'm part of a cult that tells me what to do and when to do it. That's exactly what people think when you get saved, come out of your lifestyle and begin to adapt or adopt yourself to the Christian beliefs and to some of the standards that are being implemented at the local church. They say, what in the world's going on in your life? Those people are changing you. Those people are telling you how to live now. No, I'm doing it because I want to. Oh, yeah, right. Well, my pastor said that we need to do this. And my pastor said that we need to do that. And my Sunday school teacher said we ought to do this. Oh, really? They believe you are being manipulated. And that you are following after the beliefs of men. That you're being duped, bamboozled, faked out, tricked, deceived. So I want you to understand where the Bible originated. This, I believe, this is God's Word. It's God's Word. And you say, it's God's Word. And your friend says, why? Well, my pastor said it is, and my Sunday school teacher said it is, and isn't it? And they go, you're supposed to know. Right. Hold on now, let's just get down to it. I want you to understand before we go any further, I want you to understand the origin of the Bible. Again, we're at Psalm 119, verse 89. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm telling you that if my child comes home from school and tells me that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and I don't believe him, I want him to show me how he came to 4. How he got four. Show me. How in the world did you come up with four? Two plus two equals four? How'd you get that? Is, that? is that unrealistic as a parent to want to know? Not at all. You say, well, I already know that two plus two equals four. What if you didn't? I want him to be able to show me what he learned and why it's true instead of just what somebody told him. And I think it's the same with the Bible. Same with church. Notice what it says here. Forever, O Lord, thy word is... What's that word? Settled. Forever, O Lord, thy word is in heaven. You see, that's settled. And, and by the way, let's, let's go one more here. Forever, O Lord, thy word is in heaven. There you go. Oh, that's important right there. See, when Moses went up upon Mount Sinai and he received the words transcribed by the finger of God onto a stone tablet... Those words were not conceived at that moment. God didn't just one day hear from His servant, realizing there was a number of people below that needed the law, and He said, guess what? You know what, Moses, you've been up here. You've been faithful. You've got those, those tablets I told you to bring. Let me go ahead and write out something. I tell you what, let me think here. Yeah, number one, thou shalt not see, number two, number two, thou shalt not, that's not how it worked. That wasn't when the Word of God was conceived on the top of Mount uh, Sinai. 
See, the Word of God, the Bible says, is settled in heaven. And even as Moses received a pattern describing the tabernacle and ultimately put another tabernacle on earth, the one that patterned the one in heaven, I want you to realize that those stone tablets were simply a copy of the original already there. Settled in heaven. See, I'm convinced that the Word of God is eternal. And it's eternal as the God we serve is eternal. Notice what it says in John 1.1. Look over there. John chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says here. It, It opens up John, you know, the one whose head leaned on the breast of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. Who's, who could hear the very heartbeat of God? John now writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, Without Him was not anything made that was made. Wow. That, that, that ties right into Colossians chapter 1. And then right back to Genesis chapter 1. Notice again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's important, isn't it? In John 1.14, look over there, verse 14. And the Word... Who is the Word? Who's the Word? It's God. You can't separate the Word from God. The Word is God. The Word is God. And God is the Word. Now we're going to define it a little bit more. We're going to make it a little more clear even. Or maybe more muddy in some people's eyes. Verse 14, And the Word was made flesh. So what's it really saying? God was made flesh. And we know who that was. Jesus Christ. So now the Word is God. God is Jesus Christ. So therefore the Word and Jesus Christ are one. You can't separate them. It's impossibility. It's just inconceivable. It doesn't work. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ is the Word of God. You can't have one without the other. Not only is the Word of God eternal, but so is Jesus Christ then. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Nobody will debate that. We'll say, okay, Jesus Christ is eternal. He's God in flesh. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, we're good with that. We get that. Well, hold on then. What we're going to have to then come to the conclusion is, is that the very Word of God that we hold in our hands is also the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. It too is eternal. And this book 
is settled in heaven. Therefore, the word of God we hold in our hands is just a copy of the original in heaven that is eternal and that is the same forever. There's only one word of God in the English-speaking world. That is the King James Bible. Not the New King James. The King James. Now again, you can go ahead and debate things all day long. You can try to figure it out on your own. And you can go, you know, deal with all of that circular, uh, circular reasoning that goes about. And, and honestly, I'm not going to argue. You'll find people that are nice people, good people, and even people that honestly, genuinely seem to know the Bible. And they'll say to you, it doesn't matter what book you use. And that's exactly right. It's a book. You can use the NIV book. You can use the New World Translation book. You can use any of the other books you want. But if you want the Bible, my friend, you need a King James in the English-speaking language. That's as simple as it is. I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm just here to give you the truth. And the bottom line is this. We've got a Savior that's perfect. We've got a Bible that's perfect. We've got a Savior that's eternal. We've got a Bible that's eternal. We have a book that is settled in heaven and is a copy. The one I hold in my hand is nothing more than a copy of the one that's in heaven. So that's a little bit radical. Thank you. It's a compliment. I appreciate it. In a world where there are no absolutes, in a world where humanistic thinking and reasoning seems to prevail in every turn of events, isn't it just nice to actually know that there is a truth that we can stand on? That it doesn't change, wax or wane, with our culture and our society. We have the same book that they had 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and today it's called a King James Bible. Here it is. Man, it's been working, friend. It's been working. And all of a sudden, in the last 100 years, or 150 years, we decided that it isn't good enough. And so we created what is called an eclectic text. Westcott and Hort came along. I mean, spiritual geniuses, right? The problem was they didn't even believe that Jesus Christ was God in flesh. And here they take these verses and they start pulling things out of the Alexandrian texts and all these different texts. And they make their own Bible up that never existed in the history of mankind. It's not even the same one that's over in the Vatican today. It's a different Bible than that. It's comprised and made up of a bunch of different pieces and parts of Bibles that they found. They picked and chose whichever ones that suited them, put them all together, made what's called an eclectic text. Pieces and parts from everywhere, from everything under the sun, called it a West Cotton Hort text. And every single Bible that's on the market today, with the exception of this book, is a product of that text. I want you to know that the Bible is inspired tonight. It's inspired. In 2 Timothy, take your Bible if you would, turn to 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. If you could get just these simple truths that I'm sharing with you tonight, 
and really get them nailed down, you would know more than 95% of Bible college freshmen. And probably more than probably more than 60% of sophomores. Sadly enough. See, we get a lot of information in our minds today. We get a ton of information in our heads. But very little of it gets to our hearts. And we're trying to function with our hands based on our head knowledge. And people recognize that there's no heart. This book, 2 Timothy 3.16, speaking of it, says this. It's concerning the Bible. All Scripture... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Notice again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means God breathed. God breathed. Now, a number of years ago, In a place called the Garden of Eden, God formed a man of the dust of the earth. The Bible says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Just as God breathed into that man the breath of life, just as that man, the moment that breath reached his being, became a living soul, an eternal soul, so God breathed into the Scriptures and made the Bible a living book. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I want you to know that this book that we hold in our hands is a living book. It's a living book. It's a person God, Jesus Christ. Today, men are living souls. Every last person in this room has an eternal soul. It will live forever. Eternal life or eternal death. But you will live one way or the other. Because God breathed into the nostrils... The breath of life. 7,000 or 6,000 years ago, he breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul, an eternal being. And even today, although Adam is off the scene, although God is not literally breathing into your nostrils the breath of life, you are just as alive as Adam. And the reality is that when God inspired this book, He breathed life. And I'm going to tell you, we may be many years removed from when those writers and those those pens of God penned the Scriptures onto paper or parchment. But this book 
as is alive today, as is inspired today, as it was the very day it was God-breathed. The Bible was God-breathed or inspired in the originals, but equally inspired or alive today. It doesn't have to be inspired over and over and over again, even as God doesn't have to breathe into the nostrils of every baby born. It was inspired or God-breathed once, and that's sufficient. It is inspired even today. That process of inspirations is described in Second Peter. He kind of gives us an idea of what's going on there. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty-one. Go to the right in your Bible there a little bit. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty-one. Notice what it says here. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were, what's that word say? Moved by the Holy Ghost. They were moved. This book didn't come about because some man or group of men or organization, institution or or committee got together and decided we're going to get a Bible together. We're going to make something called the Word of God. Man had nothing to do with it. This was not God's, the man's project. This is God's project. This isn't the will of man. It's the will of God. And the Bible tells us that when God breathed or inspired this book, He used chosen vessels and He moved them. These are not their words, they're His words. People get mixed up sometimes when a preacher will say something like, God used the personalities of the writers. Because we see some significant differences in the styles of the writing. If God chose to permit that, which it appears that He did, that's fine. But I'm convinced that at times those men had no idea what they were writing because they were simply being moved. This is God's Word, and it is inspired. There were 40 writers of the books of the Bible. There were men of all different walks of life, from kings and prophets to fishermen and shepherds. Their writings recorded, uh, uh, their, the, these writers were recorded over a period of 1,600 years. And yet it is amazing, it is miraculous, how all those 66 books are brought together in unity, harmony, and how they dovetail in truth. And then it has to be simply the work of an almighty God bringing about unity over that 1,600 years and 40 different vessels. These weren't their words, but God's words. So we see that the Bible is inspired. But not only that, but the Bible is preserved. It's preserved kind of touch on what we already discussed a little bit, but take your Bible, look over at Psalm chapter 12, please. 
Psalm chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. The Bible says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now again, we know that the psalmist here is being utilized. We have a psalm of David. But he's saying, listen, these words that I now hold in my hands, that are on these parchments, these words that I have personally saw with my own eyes, received in my own heart, those words that I store and that I ensure that are kept safe from harm, those particular scriptures right there, those that I'm reading, are preserved from this generation forever. He knew in his heart that what he was reading that day would be exactly what you and I would be reading today. Because God would preserve those words in spite of all of the turmoil, the trouble, and the difficulty that would arise in the world, as much hatred and venom as would be poured out upon God, His people, and the very Word of God, as much bloodshed that would be brought about because of the hatred for Christianity, these words would be preserved throughout history. No man would be able to consume them with fire, destroy them, wreck them, or ruin them. For God Himself would preserve His Word. To preserve means to keep or to save from injury or destruction. To defend from evil. And that's exactly what God did and is doing today. And although we no longer have the original manuscripts, because there really never were originals. They were always all copies. I don't care. It is ridiculous. Some of the stuff that's going around today. Ridiculous. Even though, and you'll hear words like original manuscripts if you study it all, you can rest assured that God has kept His Word pure from corruption. I'll guarantee you that. Again, the word that we hold in our hand, the King James Bible here, are the same words that Paul and the others, the others uh, put down on those skins 2,000 years ago. I'm confident of that. I wouldn't stand up here and preach if I wasn't. I had to come to some conclusions years ago or I made up my mind I wouldn't preach. The trend today, however, is to reject the inspiration of Scripture, citing that it's only preserved. That somehow God inspired it, yes, but now it's only preserved. That it's not really inspired. It's not really God-breathed. It's not really alive today as it was then. There are those that will admit that the originals were inspired, but say that the Bible in your hand is not. I could tell you some well-known preachers across this country that believe that, or at least have publicly spoken out in that direction. If God's words 
or his word was God-breathed, inspired, or made alive in the originals, it is equally inspired and alive through preservation. You're telling me that God preserved the words but not the power? Makes no sense at all. Oh, I understand the difference between preservation and inspiration. But then again, you tell me the difference between the heads and the tails on a coin. They're still all part of one. You can't separate inspiration from preservation. You can't separate preservation from inspiration when it comes to this book. Just like you can't take a nickel and cut it in half and it'd be worth anything. The Bible is not worth a plum nickel if it's not still inspired. Not only do we find that the Bible is inspired, it's preserved, but the Bible's unique. I want you to notice in chapter 17, Acts 17, our text, verse 13, what the Bible says. Acts chapter 17. Back to where we began reading earlier on, the beginning of the evening. Chapter 17. Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. Notice again a very important phrase. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that, we'll stop right there, notice this phrase, the word of God. It does not say a word of God. The word of God. This book is extremely unique. In Psalm 86, 8, the Bible says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Even as Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, was unique among men, even as there is only one God, there is only one word. It's God's Word. It is not up for debate. It is not a matter of which Word. It is the Word of God. Not a Word. Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn and though places bear traces of tears, Yet more precious than gold is the book, worn and old, that can shatter and scatter my fears. When I prayerfully look in the precious old book, many pleasures and treasures I see, many tokens of love from the Father above, who is nearest and dearest to me. The old book is my guide, tis a friend by my side, it will lighten and brighten my way. And each promise I find, Susan, gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it each day. There is no other book like this book. No other book. As good as a novel may be and as as thrilling as it might see, as captivating as it could can be, it's not this book. As alluring as an article may, may be in your life as you look scan across the the, the magazine rack, there's nothing like this book. This living book. This life 
life-changing book. Young people, adults alike, don't ever grow weary of holding this book. I'm very, very concerned with the direction of our age. I'm fearful that one day we'll not hold Bibles. We'll simply carry them in our phones, on our iPads, electronic devices. You carry this in public, it's a testimony. You carry that, it means nothing. You read this in public, it means something. You read this, nobody knows the difference. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have it. I've got it on mine. It's convenient even. But it won't be long. Some of you will try to sneak your little electronic device out soul winning with you instead of carrying the authoritative Bible that you have to turn to and show somebody. You'll go, well, I don't have my Bible. I'll just show them on my electronic little TV here screen. See, the Bible says this. Do you know what you do with things on screens today? You delete things. You add things. You correct things. You change things. You paste things. You cut things. You move things. Do you know what? When I see something on that screen, I don't know if it's true or not because there's not one thing on a computer screen that you can trust till you do the, ba- the, till you do the homework. But when I see it in that old book, there it is, black and white. It's not going to be deleted out of this one without a tear mark without a pen scratching it out. I just want to encourage you not to lose this book. That's all. Don't take it off your coffee table. So when friends and family come over, it's no longer sitting there as a testimony that this house is God's house. Use those other devices and enjoy them. They're very convenient. However, be careful that you don't forget this is a precious book. Hold it close. Don't let anybody take it from you. It's worth dying for. Many did so that you could hold it today. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this old book. We thank you, Father, for just the privilege to have the Bible at our disposal. Well, thank you for the just the inspiration and preservation of that book, the the fact that it lives and that it's alive and that it's powerful and life-changing. You even say that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Lord, it can change the infidel's life. It can bring about salvation. It can bring about transformation. God of heaven, help us never to doubt the power of the Word of God. And may we be ever grateful for it. Bless us in this time. Lord, if there be even any that have yet to receive and accept Christ as Savior, may they just boldly step out of their seat, come forward and say, that's me. i got to get it settled. i got to know for sure that Christ, the Christ of the Bible, is my Lord, my Savior. And Lord, as Christians, may we once again recommit ourselves to the reading of Your Word, to the study of Your Word, to the memorizing of Your Word, to the meditating of Your Word. And Lord, not take it for granted, but realize it is a very unique book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.